Let's bow our heads another time and pray for the Lord's help as we interact with him and his word. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that it's you, not just distant, and Jesus, not just in a resurrected body up in heaven, but you with us through the one that you promised to send. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit. We pray for your help as we think, engage with your word in your text. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So talking about the coming of the new year and the passage of the seasons and Boy, the first day, Gordon was just full, full of good news when I came in this morning. He said, I get to watch the Yankees today. <laughs> uh, spring training starting. Um, boy, there was all sorts of, of good things. And there's a, a kind of a ritual of life. We talk about a church calendar, but there's also like a, a life calendar that, that goes around. And for me, every year, it is the Australian Open on the radio in January. And I love that, and I look forward to that. Um, It's a group of broadcasters who are Australians and Brits and North Americans, and there's just something about the interaction with each other and the talking. And I I don't really need a fancy sports channel on TV. I like the radio to hear that. And it happened in um, February this year because of COVID concerns and calendars and this and that. And one of the things they do is they take a message, go on their website and, and send them a message, and maybe if they got time between sets, they'll read that on the air if it's interesting or something. And, and I, I, I wrote to them. I said, you know, it's Dave from, David from Connecticut. And I wanted to drop this minister thing just to kind of let them know maybe, you know, there's some ministers out there, and I wanted to talk about preparing messages. And this, just, so I just said, this is David from Connecticut, Thank you. You guys are so professional and yet so warm, and, and I look forward to, to hearing you every year. And, and I said, I hope old Djokovic can win this thing in straight sets and I can focus on my sermon preparation. And, and um, just said something like that. I wanted to hear what they would do with it, for one. And they read that, and, and uh, the Australian woman who kind of leads the thing up, she goes, well, that's the kind of minister I like, one who likes to talk about sport. And I thought, well, that's good, a, a, little, a little positive. And then they said, good luck with your sermon tomorrow. And I thought, okay, that's, that's good, that's a, that's a little something there. And, and I was able to tell them thanks. And it's something we're going to do this morning then, is we're going to talk a little bit about sport for a moment, especially something in tennis. And you hear this phrase a lot, and it applies to the situation we have in Acts. They talk about somebody consolidating the break. Uh, somebody's serving to you, and they, they, fl- they flip their coin, and somebody serves first. And if, at this level, some of these guys, Djokovic against uh, 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 Medvedev, or some of these guys, it's almost like if you can get one break ahead, uh, break their serve, because they serve so powerfully and so good. And if their serve is on, these sets will go... Seven six six seven seven six. Nobody makes a mistake. But boy, if the one guy you can break that serve, and then you come back out to serve, 
what you have to do is consolidate that break. You have to make it stand up. The guy wrote, a lead is only worth something if you can make it stand up. In fact, I think losing a set or match in which you squander a lead feels worse than never having the advantage at all. So when you get that early break of serve, you want to maintain the cushion by consolidating it with an immediate hold of your own. It can be a tough game to hold because you have a tendency to relax a bit after breaking serve, and your opponent will dig in after falling behind. Here are a couple of things you can do at that moment to make sure you stay out in front. And one of them, and we're going to get off this really fast here, but he says, pay special attention to the first point. You've got the break and some momentum, and you don't want your opponent to think he has a chance to get it back. Getting the first point of the game, slight as it may seem, will bolster his belief that he can turn things around. Whether you're serving after a finished game or after the changeover, take some extra time to construct a smart first point before you step up to the line, etc., etc. Now, I want to be abundantly clear that this that we're in, this, this spiritual um, cosmic thing going on uh, in the world is not a simple game. It's not even a simple human war. And yet Paul did use these illustrations about sport, as the Australians and Brits might say, or sports, as we Americans would say. Uh, talking about, Paul says, so I fight, not as one who beats the air. Uh, you're running the race and run all, only one gets the prize. Uh, follow me and as I follow Christ in the image of, of the, the life being a marathon and your Christian faith not being a sprint. And, and there are these, these illustrations of sports or illustrations of war, uh, battle, a good soldier engaging, uh, those types of things. Uh, God gives them to us because we're like little people. And these little illustrations help us to understand. Now, uh, in no way ever is God threatened by Satan. It's not God versus Satan. We sure hope if we get enough of us against enough of them that we hope God wins. That's never been in doubt, even though God in the Bible uses imagery like that. So I'll say this. God is not going to sustain an injury and have to forfeit. He's not going to be intimidated by any hostile environment of a raucous crowd There's no line judge or partial chair umpire that will emerge to throw the match against God. God's not going to have an uncharacteristically bad day ever. No double faults with God. None of that, even as we talk about this idea of consolidating the serve. Uh, The Bible is described, the the warfare is described as a contest and a battle. But it's a battle that already belongs to the Lord. The only thing that we don't know, and even God knows this, is who in the end is going to be gods and who is going to go to hell. But even that is foreknown and foreordained by God on a level that is way, way, way there. Yet I'm happy to use a sports illustration to describe the situation that happened in the early church. It looked bad for God's people. 
They were scattered. They were discombobulated. They were in trouble. They had seen Stephen, their chosen leader, one of the seven that they picked, who had been lifted up as a man of godliness and good works. They'd seen him talk about the truth of of Scripture and, and seen him shouted down, people stopping their ears and yelling, you're not allowed a voice, our voice, we are the mob, it's our voice and we will crush you. And they literally crushed him with the stones and the people got out of there. Livelihoods, Think of the strain. You know, I'm telling you, even just a, a move a move in a family with a husband and wife who, wife who get along pretty good, uh, that, can, that can push some strains. That, that's uh, any kind of a move and all that, that there's a stress. Think about a forced move and a questioning of why did we become believers in the first place we have to run. And then the news that, that they could not go far enough, even as far as as Damascus. And here comes Saul breathing threats and the rage and the hatred. He's going to go kill them and not safe. Think of what they were after. They were down. Saul, with the cooperation of the government, had the religious system lined up with the political system. Uh, with the transportation system, with everything. They had no recourse. Here he was coming to kill. Full of hate. Self-righteous hatred, which is the worst kind. And then God saved him. God stopped him. There's a song I like. Line goes, three members of the Trinity just showed up as guests. They said, enough of the pleasantries. We've got a warrant for your arrest. And they arrested Paul, and they took him into God's kingdom. He was stopped, shut down, and there he was. Now, uh, what Satan had planned for the church was thwarted. His serve was broken, if, if you're still in the sport mindset. What does God do then to come right back? How did God then say, no, you're not going to do this to my church and come back and consolidate that break? You see three things that God did in this passage. God consolidated that break through proclamation, or you could say preaching, through preservation, and then through a period of peace. First of all, see the proclamation. How did Saul slash Paul react to what God had done for him? In his blindness, last week we talked about how the scales came out of his eyes, how uh, Ananias was sent by God, and and, and here, here was... He was their worst enemy with the Christians. What did Saul say? He didn't say, hey, let's all just get along. There's a place for both of us in the religious world. You know what? Uh, Truth is truth, and your truth, and my truth, and what's true for you? Sort of like we're hearing in math these days. It's not 
what is 2 plus 2? Uh, it's how do you feel about 2 plus 2. Uh, he didn't go with any of that stuff. He came out saying the truth. His message as he went into the synagogues was to say what? It's in our text. He said, Jesus is the Son of God. That was his message. And they were amazed. Isn't he the one that made havoc in Jerusalem? Now he is saying Jesus is the Son of God? What did God do immediately after saving him? He gave him the courage, the strength, the mandate when he saved him. Tell people that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not enough to fade into the woodwork. His message was not this, thankfully. Hey, I was wrong. I was killing the wrong people. Now let's go kill them. He didn't say that either, did he? He said, I'm willing to be killed along with the Christians. I'm not going to kill for God, but I'll be killed for God, which he was. Barnabas, in verse 27, is, as we, a little further ahead in the story, when, when Saul went into Jerusalem and, and the disciples were afraid of him too and what he was doing. And Barnabas said, no, no, listen, I was there. What did he do there? He preached boldly in the name of Jesus. The message is proclamation and God-loving proclamation. Don't die, don't kill for the truth of the gospel, but certainly die for it even if it's just socially, even if you're just a funny, oddball person who believes in this weird stuff. Went to Jerusalem. What was his message? In verse 28, it says, He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 29, He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews, part of the group that killed Stephen. He was in the synagogue. People don't know for sure, but perhaps the very synagogue where Stephen's uh, death came, there was Paul proclaiming. No indication that he sought the Hellenists out specifically, but you know what? Seems like they were spoiling for a fight and maybe they sought him out. He didn't cower. He didn't back down. He told the truth when it was required of him to tell the truth. John Stott says four things about Paul's witness, which will transition us to the next point. These four things that Stott brought out in his uh, commentary, uh, uh, something called The Bible Speaks Today, which is about... 50 years old, so I could say the Bible spoke a couple decades ago. We could probably have to rename that commentary series, but it's a good series. Um, Paul's witness was Christ-centered. It wasn't a way to live. It wasn't a lifestyle. It wasn't the you know some Christian diet or some Christian whatever. It was Jesus is the Son of God. It was Christ-centered. His witness was given in the power of the Holy Spirit. Ananias, back in verse 17 that we looked at last week, said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Third thing, Paul's witness was courageous. And fourth, 
Paul's witness was costly. Threats against his life. Real, credible threats that actually came true later. So God, after he saved Saul, after he miraculously saved Saul, after he, in a way, picked a person in in, in your field of knowledge, in whatever news you watch, that is the most anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-whatever. Think of what it would be like if that person, and how you would think, that person, really? She's a Christian? I'm going to have to watch this thing. He Really? He's saved now? He's a... Wow. Something only God can do, but only God can save anyone. And God saved him. And immediately, the proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God, and then the preservation or the protection. Real threats... And God protected Saul. It's always been in Scripture the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Go back to Genesis and you see that. There's this conflict from the beginning. That was the main event. The undercard has always been the line of Seth versus the line of Cain. Think of Cain knocking out Abel over a relationship with God situation. It's always been. And here it looked like a knockout in the early rounds of the church. Stephen martyred. The church scattered, but not far enough from a religious zealot who was hell-bent on killing them. And then the sinner is saved. The Pharisee becomes God's adopted son. And the hunter becomes the hunted. And can't you hear the people say, what did he do? Well, you know what? We'll just have to kill him then. You got those papers that he had to lock people up? Well, let's just take those papers and let's scratch off the names of those Christians in Damascus. Let's write Saul on there. Let's get him. The hatred when someone converts We see it in our world. Thinking about old Winston Churchill who crossed the aisle twice in his political career and was known as a hater and a betrayer. Someone in our American uh, culture that is just so life and death now says, wait a minute, I'm not going to vote with the group that you think I'm going to vote with just because of the way I look or or, or I'm not in the demographic that votes this way, but I'm starting to think and I'm voting this way. And boy, they go after them worse. And the Christians didn't trust Paul either. Agent provocateur, spy. He's just going to get us to commit and then he's going to show his real colors. He was a man without a country. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. It says all, verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. Existemi. Thrown out of position. They were displaced. They were, they were, um, this, this was, uh, this was a shock. This was more than just a mild surprise. 
and God protected him. A couple of times it talks about that. I, I listed three things where God intervened to protect Saul. First one is the hole in the wall in the basket. Verses 23 through 25. They wanted to kill him. Well, his antenna would have been up because he wanted to kill Christians too. So he kind of, he knew their ways a little bit and, and he heard about it. But the fact that he heard about a specific plot, they weren't quiet enough. The fact that there was actually a hole in the wall and he had allies. And as a kid, I asked this. I don't know what answer my mom gave. I guess it was satisfactory, but we asked this. How could a man fit in a basket and go down? That would have to be a pretty strong basket. I would think even the operation itself, God intervened. And maybe it does give credence to the fact, remember we said last week that Paul means little? Maybe this is one more evidence. He was a little enough guy that he could fit in a strong enough basket. But the fact that all of that, and God didn't say, hey, go die for me. God said, live to continue to tell the gospel. Not in my notes, but just something from church history. When the persecutions came in the early days of the church, and and after all the dust had cleared and all these people had died, and they were writing down the names and they were making lists of martyrs, uh, the ones that the early church honored as martyrs were not the ones who walked up and said, I'm a Christian, kill me. The ones who were honored as martyrs were the ones who were trying to get away but were killed for their faith. You live to fight your day. You live smart. You don't walk into work right away and say, hey, fire me because I believe you're all going to hell if you don't believe it. But you know what? There may be a time where, like Daniel, where as you live your faith, it comes to you. Sam and Frodo walking, saying we don't choose the times we live in. The times choose us. And Jesus saying, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. And so you figure out, but you do not compromise your faith. And more and more, uh, more and more you're going to have not much of a choice if things keep going the way that they're going. Not saying they're going to keep going that way, but the way it looks for Christians. And you're going to have to say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And here's what I believe. And here's why I believe it. It's in the Bible. God protected him. He protected him against the suspicions of the apostles. He needed a good guy named Barnabas. Calm, trusted. Uh, Some translations say it means son of encouragement. And I forget what the other ones say it means. But Barnabas was there to walk in and, and, and... kind of let them know who Paul was. And maybe you're more of a Barnabas personality than a Paul personality. That's great. That's who God made you. Every one of us is who God made us with a role to play in God's kingdom within who God made us and what he strengthens and encourages us to do. That's why it's good we do things together. That's why the church is important. The local church is important. The body of Christ is important. And then once again, we see the threats of the Hellenists. 
And they're saying if we can't defeat him in an honest dispute like we could not defeat Stephen in an honest debate, we will erase him, we will cancel him, we will kill him. And once again, God protected and preserved because it was not time yet for Saul to die for his faith. God said, in a sense, he said, I will let you kill him eventually when I have finished preparing a place for him in heaven and when his work on earth is done. And this murder will be one more sin that will be held against you in hell. But right now you can't touch him no matter how much you want to because I'm going to protect him. Saul had protection. God was his bodyguard. More than that, you have protection. God is your bodyguard. More than that, God is the one who guards and preserves and keeps your soul. God's the one who saved your soul. God's the one who holds it and keeps it. And nothing can pluck you, your body, your soul out of God's hand. Right now, though, said the Lord, in effect, I still have wonderful work for him to do. He's going to take the gospel to Gentiles. He's going to train pastors such as Timothy and Titus and set up elders in other places, people whose names we don't know. He's going to plant churches. He's going to write half of the books in the New Testament. And I might even let him write Hebrews. It's supposed to be a joke. Thank you. A couple of you guys. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Some say Paul, some say not. That was the joke. Sorry. Got to explain it. Wasn't a good joke. All right. You, as God's convert, you also, as God's adopted and loved child, with God's work to do, are also protected by God. And here's our verse, Annie. Told Annabelle, I thought about a Bible verse that they had me learn in my little Christian school, and I'm so glad she's at school and they're making her learn Bible verses. That's good. Here's a Bible verse I haven't forgotten from my elementary school days. Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. It's like God camping around there. You can sleep. God says, I got the first watch. Okay, I'll get the second watch. To God, you get some sleep. No, I got the second watch. Okay, God, you, you're taking the first and second watch, and you work pretty hard. I'll take the third watch. No, I got the third watch too. I'm camping around here, and I will protect you. You sleep, and sleep as long as you want, and as uh, like a baby, because God's angel camping around you to protect you. And along with the protection. So we've got proclamation or preaching, however you want to say it. I, just, I chose proclamation because I thought if, I, if it was preaching, um, we, we would just automatically throw that into a category of ordained ministers uh, who might or might not talk about sport. I thought proclamation is the best way for us to see it because we're all proclaimers. But The first thing God did is he saved Paul. The church is, is now consolidating this break. They are, they are, 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 this is God in control the proclamation, then the protection or the preservation. And finally, the period of peace. Verse 31. This is a transition. We have some Peter stuff early, then we have some Paul stuff, then we're back to Peter stuff, then it's mostly Paul the rest of the way. 
that this bridge in this verse between Paul and Peter is talking about the peace that God gave, a period of peace to that church. If you're in a church and there's a period of peace, that's pretty nice. You go, God, keep the peace. God, keep it that way. Lord, we like peace. We like peace with each other. We even like peace with the world so we can share the gospel with them. But we like we like, uh, we like uh, a First Amendment. We like freedom of religion. We like people to go where they feel called to go. And if they don't like it, we like another good church down the road for them to go to or however it works. But we like peace. We like peace with our community. We're not spoiling for a fight. Sometimes the fights are unavoidable and they come to us from the outside. But we... We, we'd rather get along. Kitchen inspector comes in, we want to make sure our kitchen's right. We will comply. We want peace. We want to share the gospel with the kitchen inspector. God brought a period of peace in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So bridge between Peter and Paul, I said that. Peter stayed with the persecuted flock in Jerusalem. When there was peace, Peter felt uh, free to go check on the others that he was a, one, of the, one of the apostles in charge of. And so we see him next week. We'll get him going down to uh, Lydda and Joppa. But he did what a godly leader does. He stayed with the flock in Jerusalem that was there being persecuted. Being built up, the word peace. Oiko dameo, oiko being house. The word is about a house builder, an edifier. It's to embolden, to construct, to figuratively confirm. Uh, the church has been in various stages of construction ever since then. We are just one more part. We're not our own little building project. We are part of what God is doing and has done for centuries across Christian denominations uh, all the way through. God is building our little part, our little wing of the, of the church up. And it was being built up then. The foundation was being established in those days with Christ as the cornerstone. But we're part of that. It's continually being built we are part of God's building project as a church. And then it says they were doing a couple of things. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. What does that mean they were doing? They were doing what is right because they know it's how God wants them to live. Walking in the fear of the Lord. Uh, uh, the Strong's concordance on that phrase, walking in the fear of the Lord, threw me back to Nehemiah. And this was very interesting, Nehemiah 5. And what's happening is they were doing God's work. They were back after exile. They were building the wall and all that. But there was some mistreatment even among God's people. And some people were poor and, and, and they needed to borrow money. And they were, it was just a, it was a mess in how uh, people were seeing each other even as God's people. And Nehemiah said to them, now this is 5.9, so I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Ought you not to walk in the fear of God, in the fear of the Lord, 
We love the Lord. We love the friendship with the Lord. We love it that God is our friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, We love uh, verses that talk about Jesus saying, greater love has no one than this than that a man lays down his life for his friends. That's good. That's one way God speaks to our little pea brains to talk about who he is. Um, If that is your exclusive picture of Jesus, though, hey, Jesus, old buddy, old pal, good to see you. haven't seen you for a while. Hey, let's sit down and, you know, then you're not getting the whole picture of who Jesus is. Listen to two bluegrass songs back to back, uh, and and they were interesting. I thought, I'm not going to pick hairs with or pick straws or pick bones or whatever the phrase is, split hairs, draw, whatever. I'm not going to fight with these guys. But one of them said, when I'm finished with all my labor, I'll go to heaven and Jesus will be my next door neighbor. (laughs) And I thought, well, I I don't think he's going to be quite like a next door neighbor, but I think what they're trying to convey is the presence of Christ as if you could, so, so I'll give them benefit of the doubt, but I'm glad for the others that talk about, I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to be led all the way to heaven by the hand of the one who had the nails in his hand. And I thought, if you can keep balancing those out and take it, make sure you're scriptural, uh, but walk in the fear of the Lord. There's a way to live. There's a way that seems right to a man, and there are the ways of death. There's a reason why We confess our sins. Boy, our living right, we probably haven't defined, probably the best people that live right are, 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 they don't look like quite like we would, even in our self-righteousness would would know I live right, because look at me, because I beat this sin. Yeah, but how about all those others? Okay, so it's not, what I'm saying, I've got like, everybody's looking and making sure I don't preach work salvation here. That's good. Um, But you walk in the fear of the Lord. Walk like God's walking with you. Confess your sins. But you live godly. You got a choice to tell a lie or tell the truth. Fear the Lord, tell the truth. You have a choice to well, we'll just stop we'll stop there. You you, you can you can fill in the blanks and, and go. You make those applications, but um, what you do with your time, your free time, how you steward the life that God gives you. Walk in the fear of the Lord. This church had peace. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And maybe the phrase that you need to think about is what it means to to live and walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. God's going with you. God's protecting you. Okay, so I've made a lot of applications along the way, and we won't repeat them here. One thing I wanted to point out as we finish the preaching part of our worship service is this. God is God. God is undivided. God has provided salvation through Jesus Christ. People who know this to be true have died for it, have lived for it, have been consistent in their walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. People, however, are divided We're not unified in our thoughts and our approach to God. Some have been saved by God. They've repented of their sins. They've placed their faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on their behalf for their salvation. Uh, Two kinds of people in the world. 
And they said, there's two kinds of people in the world. People who divide people into groups and people are in, I forget how the rest of it went. There's, but there's two kinds of people in the world. And that comes out at the final day. There are the sheep and the goats. There are the saved and the lost. The good news from this text that we've been on the last couple of weeks is this. If you're in the non-Christian category, you're not locked into that. That's not necessarily where you will end up if that's where you are right now. Paul is an example. You might even be a little bit hostile toward Christianity in your heart, even as you sit through a church worship service. But you are not beyond the reach of God. Think of what it might mean if all of this is true. Think if there is such a thing as forgiveness from God who you know you have sinned against. If God really became truly human while remaining truly God and bore the penalty for your sin. If he experienced death, the equivalent of an eternity in hell on your behalf so you can have life. If that's true and you are not Christian yet, you are missing out. You need that. That's what you want, even if you can't identify it as that. And there is protection and will be protection and peace for you on this earth as you are converted by God. He will give you the gift of repenting of the things in your life to this point that have not been pleasing to him. He'll give you the faith that will let you trust him. That's what you want. It's what Saul would want if if he were here. This is what he would say if he stood up and said, here's what happened to me. Now I want to tell you, Jesus is the son of God. Repent. Trust in Jesus. And I would just say, if you're a non-believer, don't let time pass before you make that commitment to him. Sometimes the diagnosis is three weeks. Sometimes you don't get that long. And for us believers, those of us who've been saved like Saul was, enjoy the many ways that God has consolidated the break in your own life. God didn't just save you from sin. He saved you to something, to a life. Uh, we talk about a victorious Christian life, and then we say that, look at all these people, uh, doesn't look too victorious, but we got the wrong lens on, the wrong filter. Look at it from God's economy and say, wow, the Christian life is the way to go, and I can be joyful in this journey all the way through, just like Saul was. Not only did God save your soul from death, He brought you real life in the here and now and eternal life in heaven. Think of what God's done and is doing in your life. The way that you are right now, the path you're on that he placed you on when he saved you. And wow. It's pretty joyful. This is good stuff. Let's pray and continue that by going to the table. Lord, thank you. 
for the salvation you've given to us. Thank you for reaching down and saving us. In our cases, it may not have been the exact circumstances like Saul where you knocked him down and and blinded him and spoke audibly to him and he spoke back. But it was just as much a passing from death to life when you saved us. Thank you for the voices that proclaimed to us, maybe parents, maybe friends, maybe uh, someone in church or relatives. We thank you for being the one who saved us. Thank you for reversing the course and the direction of our life. And then thank you for the many ways that you have continued to build us up and strengthen us as you protect us all the way till it's our time to go to heaven. Thank you for Jesus who died for our sins. In his name we pray. Amen.